Or you know how you learn, you know, if, if someone is persistent, right? You look at them, you look at the work they do, and you go, that's a persistent kid. That kid's working through problems. But you don't go, hmm, that kid's a B minus in curiosity. Well, hey again, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Learners Podcast, where we believe change will only happen when we put the focus back on learning, understand the world as it is today, and when we raise the bar on what's possible in our schools and classrooms. I'm Will Richardson, your host, and with this week's conversation between my good friend and Modern Learners co-founder, Bruce Dixon, we are celebrating our 50th episode, which means this is an extra special conversation about schools, learning, and what matters most in education. I hope you enjoy it. Our big news this week at Modern Learners, however, is that Change School 6 is now open for registration, and we are so excited to launch another amazing group of global educators, and I want you to be one of them. Just go to change.school right now for all the details, and don't forget that all of our Cohort 6 participants will have free access to the first of our Modern Learners courses, which launches this November. It's titled Reimagining Assessment for Modern Learning, and it's a $495 value that you'll get for free just by enrolling by September 14th at midnight. As always, if you like this show, please do us the favor of heading on over to iTunes and giving us some love in the form of a rating or review, or even better, just tell all your friends about our efforts here at Modern Learners to level up the conversations we're having about education and schooling in the modern world. But for now, thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoy this 45-minute conversation between me and Bruce. Well, Bruce, it's been a long time since the two of us have gotten together to do a live streaming podcast to Facebook and um, wherever else this this <laughs> this recording goes. How how the heck are you? You are and, yeah, and you are in the rain. You are in the rainforest. You are in the rainforest again. I am totally jealous. Yeah, up in the rainforest uh, near Port Douglas in far north Queensland, we call it. But yeah, it's pretty cool up here. Love, love and right on cue, right on cue, listen to those birds right, right behind background. you. It's like you, you hit that recording button or you hit that play button just at the right time. So that yeah, I'm, actually in a, I'm actually in a factory in an industrial suburb, but I'm imitating birds. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past you. Yeah. So listen, hey, it's, it hasn't been that long since we've actually seen each other because I was actually um, down... Uh, we spent a, uh, a, about a week together, um, a high-intensity week that was uh, jam-packed full of presentations and, and some visiting and some, uh, some touristy stuff. But uh, yeah. I'm just yeah. now, I, I've been home for two weeks, I'm just now recovered, I think. Yeah, I know, uh, there was, was a lot going on, wasn't there? I mean, <laughs> we started, uh, well, I think you started uh, in the States and then came over and um, headed over to Perth in Western Australia. And uh, did a lab over there, which was our second lab after the, uh, the Modern Learners Labs up in Chicago. And, um, and then immediately that afternoon, hopped on a plane, flew to Melbourne. Um, couple, uh, you did some work there and then we flew to New Zealand and did a couple of assessment labs. One in Auckland and, uh, and then one in Christchurch. And, um, I, you know, a lot of fun, uh, very challenging and um, some great people. I mean, we learned an awful lot and had a lot of, uh, a lot of good discussions. That was the most intense trip I've ever made. I think I had 13 presentations in 17 days. <laughs> it's just like, it's no wonder that it's taken me two weeks to recover. But look, so here's what I want to talk about. That was an amazing trip. Don't get me wrong. I will, I'll, I'll never forget, um, obviously, the, a lot of the experiences that we had. But here's the one we want to talk about tonight. We visited a school in Christchurch on that Thursday and Friday. 
Yep. Um, the Hayeda School, uh, Hayeda Community School, right outside of Christchurch. And it was a school that was built in response to, I think it was six area schools that had been destroyed in the earthquake there about yep. five, six years ago. And I'll kind of let you do the description, um, but I have to say it was one of the most interesting, unique schools I've ever been to. And it was two days of tons of learning for me, and I know it was the same for you. But to tee off this podcast, why don't you tell, tell us a little bit or talk a little bit about the school, how it's set up, and um, how it kind of functions in some very different ways <laughs> from most schools that we get a chance to visit. Yeah, it's a, it is, as you said, a, a very unique school and uh, some very unique people uh, who are teaching there and certainly the leadership there uh, doing an extraordinary job. Um, and um, as you said, it came as a result partly uh, of the earthquakes. Um, it's a community school, so it's, uh, it's five-year-olds through 18-year-old students. Um, I'm trying to think. I think it's about 800 kids in the school. Um, yeah, maybe, even, maybe even a little bigger. But, yep. Yeah, it might be a bit bigger than that. But it's, the, the unique thing about it is the way the school is structured. Um, you walk through the we, – we, we went on a tour. I mean, you, to, be all, to be fair, on the first day there, I think it was lunchtime, and Andy, the, the principal, said, would you like to look through the school? And you and I get that offer every school we go to, and we always do because we want to make sure we're in touch with what's going on in, around the world. And, and I know both of us are thinking, yeah, you know, this will be good. It'll be nice to look at another. Well, well an hour later, both of us just sitting there with our jaws dropped. Because... And, and I mean, let's just let's be fair. We both knew that this was a different school going in. I mean, we both knew yeah. that this was going to yeah. be a different experience from most of us. Most well, one of the of that, have that's seen, right. You're right. After that hour, we were both kind of going, holy cow. So talk more, talk more about that. So uh, one of our colleagues from Change School 3, Annika McPhail, had worked there and works with the school. And uh, she'd set it up and she'd said, this is a very different school. I think you and Will are really going to enjoy working with these people. And so we, worked, we walked through the elementary or the junior school and there are just kids doing a whole lot of stuff in a whole lot of places with a whole lot of people kids of all ages and and open open spaces um open teaching areas and learning areas and kids doing different things some of them making things some of them drawing things some of them talking some of them reading some of them working on computers um and engaged in ways that were just quite extraordinary there wasn't actually an awful lot of noise as such but these were kids definitely involved in what you'd call play-based learning. There was no question, particularly the much younger children. Um, those in the ages of sort of five through eight were in very powerful play-based learning environments. They were doing a whole lot of stuff. They were talking with each other and talking with their teachers. But as we went through the school, I, I think what got to me the most about the whole experience, Will, was the understated way in which the staff went about their business and the very understated way the leadership talked about what they did in the school. This wasn't a school that came with a big fanfare. It wasn't a school that, you know, talked a lot about what they did. They just got about their business. And it was quite extraordinary just to see the level of engagement and the way the kids were working. And what completely blew me away was when we went into the the secondary environment, the high school environment, which I'm trying to keep interpreting this in from New Zealand gradings to world gradings. In other words, kids from the ages of 12 and above 
these kids were all, as, as, as we can say, it's very hard to describe with their pictures, but there were kids involved in clusters, some of them in twos and threes, some of them in bigger groups. Uh, in one area, we went, remember we went into a, like a mechanical workshop and they were involved in, in, an, in a short, um, what do they call them, workshops? They were called workshops, I think. And they could, they, the kids could schedule to sign up to a particular workshop if they wanted to do that. Or they could be sitting down and have a discussion with their teacher about the work they've been doing and reporting on what they were doing and recording their work. But what really got to both of us, I think, was after about 15, 20 minutes in this, you know, I think it was Andy talk, turned to us and said, oh, yeah, we've still got some big issues here. You know, we're trying to keep, uh, keep, it, you know, keep it in place and, and make sure we move forward. We've only been doing this for four to six weeks. And I just, that's it. We just went, you are joking. Because yeah, the, that was just extraordinary. Yeah, so so I, that was a, a pretty interesting moment as well too. I did a double take. So what they had only been doing for four to six weeks was basically they had opened up a, an area of the school and combined a whole bunch of kids into this this other space, and it was just it was just kids flowing in and out. And as we walked around. You know, I, I saw very little teaching. It was really interesting, right? So um, that's not to say that there never is teaching going on there, but it's like you said, there, there's more teachers or the adults are more like consultants and guides and coaches and things like that. I saw, um, I don't know if you remember, but in that makerspace room, girls, you know, girls and boys on, on table saws and sewing machines and all sorts of stuff where the teacher was just kind of running around and, you know, teaching on demand almost and saying, well, here, try this or here, no, this is how you do this piece of it, whatever else. Um, I, we should probably contextualize this a little bit in the fact that New Zealand's kind of an interesting place right now, just in general. I mean, um, yeah. for those people who might be listening who haven't heard, uh, the new government came in, I think it was about a year ago and maybe less even, but um, they've, uh, they've pretty much eliminated standards. Um, they have, I think it's one kind of test that they want kids to, to take, but it's not high stakes. No. Um, they've really given schools the ability to uh, fashion their own learning experiences and they've given them a lot of autonomy to not just, um, you know, kind of construct how the school operates, but also on assessments. And actually we were there that day to do a lab on assessment, which was fascinating in that space to, you know, get a sense of, of uh, how assessments might change given uh, such an emphasis on learning. And I, I think that's the way that I would capture it, right? That it was all about student learning. That's all they cared about. What are kids learning? Um, and how are they learning? And are we creating the conditions for them to learn? Um, and look, you know, let's, let's be honest too, in some of the conversations, um, it came up that, you know, not all teachers are okay with that necessarily. They, they've been struggling a little bit with helping teachers to take on that different role. Um, and um, basically, even though they were, they were able, I think, to hire everybody new at the outset, you know, people who were coming from um, those different schools that had been damaged by the earthquake or closed down or whatever, when you get into an environment that, that's that open and has that much freedom and that much choice and is driven so much by the kids, I think even some of the teachers who thought they knew what they were getting into, probably when they got into it, they were like, whoa, this is a little bit more than I thought. In fact, I think Andy had talked about the fact that they were trying to build some walls, <laughs> they were trying to create some spaces, and they were just kind of saying, no, no, let's not do that. Let's keep it open. 
let's, you know, let's make sure there are places where the teachers can congregate, you know, where they have some private space. But um, yeah, so it was just this very different dynamic. It was this very different feel. And um, it wasn't perfect. I mean, I don't think either one of us would say that it was, you know, that, that we were walking around there going, oh my gosh, you can't, you can't improve on this. I mean, this is the way that education should be, or this is the way school should be. But it was, it was very kind of mind-bending the extent to which all of those traditional structures, right? So no grades, no timetables, no real curriculum. I mean, there's just a whole different sense of how you do learning in a space with adults from the community with other kids. And I was just totally, totally struck by how different it felt from almost every place I've ever been. Yeah, and I, I agree with you totally, mate. I think, and it's hard, and I hope people, you know, watching and listening uh, get, the, get the balance of the picture we're trying to say here because um, as open, as free as it was, it wasn't random. It wasn't disorganised. There was structure. But the structure, again, was massively understated. This was, you know, as we walked around, what we saw were kids, as, as Will and I've just described, engaged in a whole lot of different learning that they were doing around a whole lot of different topics. But underneath all that, teachers had very strict sort of guidance about where they wanted to be and how they wanted to be engaging with the kids. So, um, as I said, um, each week, each, each week and then each day, um, there's a list of workshops that the teachers are putting together and the kids can sign on to actually come into the workshops. So, for instance, that machine shop uh, workshop was about using one of their big mechanical stores or pieces of technology. And, and so kids could sign on if they didn't know how to use that particular piece of equipment. This was just one specific example. They could actually sign on and go to the, the session on that, which was a workshop on how to do that. On the other hand, it's expected that, and I'll, I'll get the, probably the frequency of this not quite right, but that every teacher will engage certain numbers of kids, depending right. on what level and age they are at, in student conferences. So they'll take them off and they'll go into it. They might just sit one in one in the, in the open space, or they might just go into a small room and sit with the student for, you know, it can be anything from 10 minutes to two hours and just talk to them about what they're doing. And it's all, and they track the whole lot. I mean, it's all recorded. It's all available to the students, to the teachers, to their parents. And, and then in turn, the leadership, you know, can then see what's going on, who's, who's engaging with who and how they're actually progressing through the work that, you know, they're hoping to get completed. And so it's trying to, I guess, describe, and in many ways, as we're observing also to observe, how do you find that balance, that dynamic, when, when, when teaching isn't the dominant culture within, within the spaces, when learning obviously is, how do you structure it in a way that you understand there is some structure that there is that productive work is happening in this space, but it's being guided by the students, by their passions, and being supported in every way by the teachers. It, it is very unique. Yeah, I thought that um, that whole idea of the conferences and the way that they kept track of it was was pretty interesting. And and the leadership was putting a lot of emphasis on that. No question. I mean, they were encouraging teachers. They were expecting teachers um, to, to have certain numbers of conferences with kids because that's the, 
moment in which the teacher-student relationship, at least in their minds, I think is the most potent, right, is the most helpful toward helping kids um, get to, you know, whatever learning that they're trying to do, create whatever project or, or help them in whatever way they can. I also want to point out, though, that you know, some students were resistant to this too. I mean, we heard stories about kids who didn't feel like, um, you know, very comfortable in that environment at first. But I was, I was pretty, again, pretty amazed that considering they had taken this upper school piece of it and just kind of opened it up in the way that they had, um, I think it was the middle school and the high school, they kind of joined it together. Um, it seemed like it was a pretty fluid, like I said before, a pretty fluid learning environment that um, uh, both kids and teachers looked like they had acclimated pretty well to. And yeah. I, I think the, the, the part of it too, you know, it's like, you know, proof is in the pudding, right? And so um, when, the, when they were taking us around and they were showing us all of the different types of things that kids were creating and the projects they were working on, two of them struck out, right? Stuck out to me. One of them was a, um, a, a huge like pillar or post in the middle of the uh, classroom or in the middle of the open space actually, that I think it was wood carved. It was either wood carved or ceramic, um, just these beautiful tiles that a girl had created that were representative of, of all of the kinds of um, uh, outcomes or, or skills or, or, you know, whatever that the, the whole school was focused around, their kind of vision for what learning looked like. She just created this beautiful kind of art exhibit that was sitting right in the middle. And there were other exhibits like that um, all around as well. But then the other one that I thought was pretty interesting was we came up to this row of computers where these kids were playing uh, Fortnite. I think it was Fortnite. It was some, you know, kind of shoot 'em up game or whatever. And we were kind of watching and I think both of us probably looked at it and go, oh, yeah, there you go. Right. Just a kid, just like whatever else. Right. But um, Kathy or I, I don't know who it was who was taking us, taking us around um, said to us, no, he's actually doing research. And we were like, yeah, OK, sure. <laughs> and so she went up to him and she said, so what's the question you're trying to answer? And sure enough, I can't remember what it was, but sure enough, he was trying to answer a particular question. He had it in his notebook. He had logged the amount of time that he was spending on it. He was like writing down observations and reflections on playing the game because he was trying to come to some conclusion about playing it. Now, I guess he could have just been faking us all out, but I don't think he was. I don't think he was. I think he was actually engaged in doing research within the game because it was something that he was interested in learning about. So, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and again, we had an hour, um, but we did spend uh, a full day with a whole group of their teachers. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, it was, uh, those conversations were really rich and interesting and, and very passionate about doing it differently. And that's the last piece that, you know, kind of I walked away with was there was a sincere passion for figuring this out. And it yeah. was inquiry on their part too. Their big question was how, how do you create learning environments that don't look anything like traditional learning environments and make them work in the context of kids, of teachers, of parents, um, and also to some extent the government too, because yeah. even though New Zealand has pretty much taken a little bit more of a hands-off policy to what um, schools do, there were still some conversations that, that were going on when we were there that they were expecting some data. They were expecting something that showed that, you know, achievement or, or progress or something was happening. 
And they were kind of trying to figure out what that meant, but they were absolutely sure they were not going to do traditional data points. They were not going to yeah. do grades. They were not going to do numbers. So they were trying to figure out, well, how do we convince you that really interesting learning is happening here that's meaningful to kids that will help them pursue their goals as they become adults without yeah. attaching yeah. You know, a whole bunch of numbers to it? That was fascinating. I think the final, well, a couple of quick things too to make mention of it because I, I, it is hard to describe and I hope we've done it justice in, in what we've been talking about because as you said, it was the commitment that was evident from the leadership and, and the faculty there to this task, um, that they had a passion for working this out, that they didn't think they had all the answers, but they were also incredibly understated. They weren't trying to say, we know this is how you should do it. This is why we're doing it, aren't we? Great. It was absolutely none of that. A couple of quick things I want to make comment on. Firstly is, um, without, without going into graphic detail, it's fair to say that um, the school is not placed in a in a, uh, a high level demographic it's it's right. placed in a very challenging environment where uh, kids from all uh, walks of life uh, live the the cultural mix is um is very strongly based around maori and pacifica um and the school embraces the cultures those mixed cultures in quite quite amazing inspiring ways i have to say you know what struck me, and I think people watching and listening may or may not know, I'm married to a Kiwi, so I've always, <laughs> I've always known, you know, we spend a fair bit of time there from time to time. But what got to me here was the natural way in which the cultures were embraced. And you and I were genuinely, I mean genuinely emotionally touched by our experiences in, in both being welcome to the school um, through the through through the welcoming ceremony, from Maori welcoming ceremony, and the songs that associated with that, and then when we finished, I think both of us were just a little overwhelmed by the experience. I mean, it was nothing different from what we do here in the states with our indigenous population. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, the way we, we honor the way we honor them before almost everything that we do because we know that it was their land to begin with, and we took it away. <laughs> but obviously, I'm I'm being cynical. But I mean, it was it was to the point too where I think we had about I don't know 40, 45 people in that workshop that day in that lab, and at the beginning of it, they all came by us and we touched foreheads, <laughs> you know, and it was like I'm going, thank God I didn't have that last cup of coffee, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I, wasn't, I wasn't ready to get that up close and personal with people, but that's the way that they welcomed us. And it was powerful. I mean, it was really very cool. It was a great yeah. way to start the day. It kind of set the tone for the whole day. And, and um, they were an amazing group of educators who, I mean, I, I, I don't think, I, I think we do our labs pretty well, but I'm, I'm not sure we're, we're that good. They seem to be engaged the entire time. They were not, you know, they were not checking their emails or anything. They were like working hard. They were seriously thinking hard about the stuff we were trying to get them yeah. to think about. And, it, and that made the day just powerful. So that was really great. And I, I mean, I, I, you know, if you're ever, if anyone's listening and they ever go to New Zealand and they ever go to Christchurch, uh, let us know because we can hook you up. <laughs> we, can, we can get you a, a tour at, at, at that school, which is a, a pretty amazing place. One of the most amazing schools that I think I've been to. Top two or three, um, no doubt, in terms of, of um, doing it differently, but really focused on student agency and learning in the ways that a lot of people talk about it, but don't really live it. Um, so, I, yeah. What's really interesting too, Will, it's interesting, you know, we're both, we're both qualifying what we're saying. We think this, is, this was an inspiring school. 
and to be applauded for everything they're doing. And also, by the way, very open to having people, uh, you know, visit and see the school. As, and, and, and people might underestimate that can be quite a burden because a lot of people yeah. want to see what's happening in schools like this. And, and we're also saying, as they are too, that they haven't worked it all out, that they're not trying to say they've got a perfect, as, as Will said, you know, some of the students have trouble adapting. A few of the staff are probably still taking time to get used to it. But let's just qualify that with this. You know, I don't know. I've been into many what we might call traditional schools where they've got it all worked out and things are perfect there. And I'm not going to quote one in particular um, that we, we may refer to that was, you know, we, 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 it's important that you keep a balance on it. And we know that in our existing schools, you know, there are many things that concern a lot of us. And, and yet when we look at a new school, a school to undertaking quite different approaches to structure like this one, people sometimes can be a little bit too quick to point the finger and say, oh, yes, but you're not doing it. Because what they're doing is they're saying, oh, we actually liked what, we were, what was familiar with us, what we've been doing for 50 or 100 years. So therefore, what you're doing isn't as good as that. And you're going, no, hang on, that, that's not the criteria. The, right. You can't compare with what we had. What you've got to do is look at what's there and say, which parts of this are working? Which parts of this are working incredibly well? And which parts do we need to pay attention to? And quite honestly, I think they're being very honest in the way they're going about that process. So I guess my last comment about the school, Will, would be that I hope that, that the Board of Trustees at that school, that the people that the school have to report to, because we don't want to give this impression, this was a government school, as we've made this very clear, and right. they do have reporting structures. So don't for one second think there isn't any, any compliance as such required. But I just hope the people that are involved in those more senior levels right through to the, to the ministerial level are aware of the investment, the passion, the time, and the commitment that it, and the guts, frankly, the courage that it takes for people involved in this school to make this place the way it is. And after this short break, I'll be back with part two of my conversation with Bruce Dixon. Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Modern Learners Podcast. If you're listening today, it's likely because you understand that we have a real need for change in our schools and that we owe it to our learners to think differently about what school is and what it can be. Modern Learners Community is the home for global educational leaders who are igniting the movement to fully reimagine the school experience for all learners. If you are someone who is in a position of educational leadership or who someday aspires to be, and you want to surround yourself with others doing this difficult and vital work, we invite you to join us in Modern Learners Community. I'm Lynn Hilt, the Community Manager of MLC, and our Learning Commons will help ensure you're using your professional learning time to the fullest. MLC offers carefully curated content to help you find signal among the noise, thought-provoking questions and discussions with inspiring community members who are serious about change, live events and access to the Modern Learners team, and a circle of critical friends who will help you reimagine the school experience for the learners in your schools. When you become a member of Modern Learners community, you will be challenged, you will be heard, you will question, you will gain clarity, and you will learn. Visit modernlearners.com slash mlcommunity and click subscribe now to request your invitation to MLC. After doing so, we'll be in touch about how you can join in our movement 
and we are so confident that you will find incredible value in making MLC your preferred learning destination that we offer a 30-day money-back guarantee. Let's create a whole new experience of school together. And it's not going to get any easier. I mean, um, you know, like we said, uh, there were some grumblings about data and about giving some, some type of more concrete assessments, which is kind of the segue into the second part of this podcast that we wanted to talk about today. But um, just one last comment on that. And it, it kind of does um, align to this, this kind of shift in the conversation. But, uh, you know, when you said what's working and let's look at what's working, well, it depends on how you define working, right? Yeah. And it, it's always, it's always kind of interesting to me, again, you know, if you've been listening to this podcast any, any amount of time, <laughs> that we're just, we're just really interested in language and common language. And um, so I, I, here's the segue to this article. Uh, we've got two articles that we want to talk about. Here's the segue to this article in Ed Week. Um, that I found just really interesting because it does kind of align with what this what the the challenges are right now I think for hiata and the article is titled "Schools should teach and in parentheses and measure soft skills parents and educators agree and so they went out Gallup went out and did this survey and they asked everybody um, what do we want what do we want to make sure our kids can do you know and they came up with the ability to apply what they've learned problem solving skills critical thinking skills ability to view issues from different perspectives teamwork these are this is the conversation that we're having now right because i think more and more around this country at least but certainly around the world a lot of people are beginning i think to grudgingly um, move to this idea that it's got to be about literacy dispositions and competencies rather than so much about carrying a whole bunch of knowledge around in your head. And, and even though that's easier to assess, right? So now we're at the point where we're going, okay, well, we need this stuff, but now we're getting to the hard part, which is, well, how do you make sure those things are happening? And I just want to read you a couple things in here and then, um, and then let's have a conversation about it. One, here's one quote. Of the teachers polled, only one in 10 said their school's informal and formal gauges of quote-unquote non-academic skills measure them very well. <laughs> so obviously, even if we wanted to do this, we really have no idea what we're doing about this, right? And we, we don't have a lot of the, the, the tools or the insights or whatever to make sense of how you how you find out if children over time, if their curiosity is increasing, if their creativity is flourishing, all that type of stuff. Um, and they say in part because many researchers, but that's in part because many researchers have said measures of social, emotional, and soft skills are not sophisticated enough to adequately track progress over time. So here's, and, and then they talk about the fact that some schools are using self-reported surveys with kids, they're asking them. And I know that Brightbytes, who are great friends of ours, uh, those folks have been working on how to try to capture um, more of those dispositions and more of those kinds of competencies. But here's the question I wanna ask you, Bruce, why do we wanna measure this stuff in the first place? Why do we wanna yeah. point, why, do, why do we wanna put this into a data point? I'm, I'm yeah. seriously, I'm asking you because you're much wiser than I am and, yeah, and you know, yeah. you've been around so much longer than I have. That, excuse, you know. excuse me, <laughs> I just fall about the floor laughing. <laughs> both of us, just to remind listeners and watchers, might be amused to know we're both <laughs> celebrating birthdays in the current seven days. Um, so that was, I, I just got to the end of the article and we do this all the time, but that particular article and I just thought, why? I, I want to just, 
convey a little story too to complement what you were just saying. So about, oh no, I'm going back now about five years ago, but let's call it the post-21 century skills learning <laughs> thing stuff, rubbish that went about. Okay, so all the C's, that was... The, 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 yeah, the, all the, 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 the 18 C's, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, <laughs> so in the middle of all that, and I will name parts of this, I won't name everyone involved, but let's just say... Um, um, one of Australia's leading universities is in the top something of the world, whatever, University of Melbourne, Faculty of Education, and I have a lot of respect for many of the things that they're doing there, but this particular one was rather interesting. They got enormous amount of funding because they were going to come up with ways of measuring this stuff because it was important. And I always remember seeing the results of something like a million dollars put into this thing, and they actually did a beta of it. I, I was working, at, I was running Ideas Lab at the time, and uh, they came out and said to us, look, we're just doing this. This is our first, the first C skill we're going to measure is collaboration. Mm. Good one. Here's how it went. Did, oh, you've did, got they, to measure it. Oh, did, they, yeah. did they throw a dart or something and pick that one? I mean, Well, you know, that would like... have been better because <laughs> you imagine you're looking at your screen and, and many people who are watching us now are looking at a screen. So you're looking at your screen and directly opposite you is another, is a student. This is how they were going to do it. A student. And they're looking oh. at their screen, see? Okay. And so what they were going to do was, the two of them had were thrown a problem and they were given the problem with different pieces of the question missing. And somehow they had to decide the answers to the question, the problem, which, whereby each of them had different parts of different facts resolving the problem. So the idea was they could artificially create this fictitious problem with fictitious pieces missing. So that guess what? the two would have to collaborate to solve it. Now, I thought that looks like a really realistic way of assessing collaboration skills and, by the way, spending a million dollars doing it. And I just, yeah. I, I won't name because there were a couple of very well-known, incredibly well-referenced and highly profiled people, not Australian, well, Australian and, and overseas people involved in this. I thought this, it went, one, it was just a farce. It was just complete rubbish um and and back to your question you came at the end of the last article why i mean what was the bloody point you know you know, I, you know, you know how you measure curiosity right yeah with <laughs> you, look a little kid, you, look at a, you look at a kid do some work and you go that kid's curious <laughs> that kid's asking questions or you know how you learn you know if, if someone is persistent right you look at them look at the work they do and you go that's a persistent kid that kid's working through problems but you don't go, hmm, that kid's a B minus in curiosity. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's like, that's ridiculous. If, yeah. if you see a child and that child isn't asking questions, well, then maybe that's, you know, that's uh, something we need to attend to. We need to help that child learn how to ask more questions. But I mean, I, I just uh, the idea that we need measurements so we can compare over time. I mean, this is what we do in education, I think, to give ourselves work to do. Because, you know, if we, just, if we just let common sense rule in this, we do it the way we do it with our own children, which is, you know, we look at them and we say, well, they're giving up too soon. Let's, you know, let's kind of nurture them a little bit in terms of how to stay at something or let's find something that they will stay with for a longer period of time or whatever else, right? But we're not going, oh, my God, he's failing in collaboration. <laughs> just, well, I do it all the time. Like, you were no wrong. Because, yeah, but... <laughs> See, where you had it wrong was you were using letter grades, right? The answers oh, were num yes. numbers. 
numbers. numbers out of a hundred. Well, we can, but we can, we can easily translate the letters. Seventy for a collaborate. It now, here's the interesting thing, and I think you and I talk about this from time to time. Is that I think it's really around insecurity and trust. It's insecurity in the profession that sometimes we almost, you know, have this sort of problem that we've been conditioned by by many forces outside the sector to believe that if we don't have a mark, a way of measuring kids, that we're not doing our job. And I think we just should let that go. Um, but it's a lack of trust and it's a lack of trust at every level. And it's not only a lack of trust by, by politicians of ministries, of ministries of leadership, of leadership of educators, of educators of students, of students, dare I say, of themselves. And this is where sometimes... Can you do that again? Go do that again? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so educators, students themselves, as you just said when you were talking about what we saw at Hiata, they become so conditioned through 10 and 12 and 14 years or whatever That's it is right. to believe if I don't have a mark, obviously I haven't done anything worthwhile. And you're going, give me a break. I mean... We've got to break through that and we've got to put it on the table and say, can we just work on a basis of trust? Does this mean it's a perfect world? Does this mean when we go to this space, you know, everyone's going to embrace these? No, it's going to take time because we've been conditioned over decades and dare I say centuries to believe that, you know, the only way we can be accountable for the work we do, whether you're students, teachers, educators, whatever, um, is if we get a mark or some formal assessment. And, Accountability is the most misused, abused, trivialised, um, marginalised term I think we have in our society. And I think it's about time we called it out. I mean, it, there's so much to unpack with this that it, it's very, um, it, it makes my brain hurt. Because once again, I think we're just not using what we know about learning in our own experience. And yeah. what we know about the dispositions that are required to learn. And the, the, the idea that we need to measure this stuff is yeah. we need to see it. I get it. I think we should see it and we should, you know, we should um, uh, acknowledge it and, and nurture it and do all of those types of things. But to, to suggest that, you know, basically the only times that kids are going to even show these, these kinds of dispositions or whatever else is in a classroom is ridiculous. And that segues us to our next and last story, <laughs> our last article. Which is a rather which, inspiring and humorous which, which I found today, which, which is, uh, was written um, uh, last year. It's on the, the Brookings Institute um, uh, website, which, you know, Brookings is sometimes liberal, sometimes conservative. It's kind of all over the place. But it was, it was written by Philip Schmidt, who is the uh, Director of Learning Innovation at the MIT Media Lab. And he tells the story of how in 2006, basically, um, the MIT campus awoke. And uh, basically, on top of the MIT dome, which sits in the middle of campus, there was a, a, a red fire truck, a real red fire truck. <laughs> and everybody was like, oh, my God. How in the world did that get up there? You know, what, what happened? And he recounts the story in this post that what they did was they went, they figured out who did it. There were about 30 kids who had gotten together and they planned this thing out. And it was just, I mean, it was in, you know, over the top in terms of how quickly and how well and how long this had taken them to do in secrecy, breaking the rules. Um, and I'm, I'm just, nope. Am I still there? Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Sorry, I don't know what happened, but um, anyway. So um, basically what they did was they took those 30 kids 
and they asked them, well, first of all, what, uh, you know, what were the most, what were the most powerful learning moments you had at MIT? And almost all of them said, get in the fire truck on top of the, on top of the dome, which had nothing to do with classrooms, nothing to do with instruction, nothing to do with assessment, nothing to do with curriculum, nothing to do with anything having to do with getting their degree. But then what they did was they really started drilling down and trying to figure out what it was that they actually learned. And uh, I'm just going to read this one paragraph that I think is great, where he says, in short, the students displayed all the competencies and skills we would hope to see in a graduate from an engineering program at a good university. For anyone interested in learning and education, that's a puzzling result. <laughs> if at one of the best universities in the country, the most important learning experience a student can have is not part of the curriculum, not endorsed by the university, in fact, is both illegal and dangerous and it can never be listed on a transcript or cited by other researchers, then what inspiration could we take from this story to redesign the rest of the education experience? Bruce, what inspiration can we take? Yep, well, just every piece we want to. I mean, every, it, it, it's so aligned with what we saw at Hiata, that at Hiata and MIT share a lot in common, that Hiata is committing to the same principles around learning that, that MIT are, when they when they look at this these experiences because it turns out as we both have found out that these MIT hacks are not one off that there's a whole this is there's a tradition of it at at, at the university at the college and at the school sorry and um and it's and it's so natural because MIT has always been I think at the forefront of breaking through these barriers and and uh, you know dare I refer to the media lab that Seymour and others were involved in. But, you know, this is such an, a, a classic, a glaring, a prominent example of what we're trying to explain. And I, my own personal quick experience is ironical where I'm sitting in this rainforest in Queensland. Uh, one of my first years teaching was in a public school, I think I've talked about it, where I, I had the delights of the, when I started teaching, of teaching 35, 10 to 16 year old kids in a class for a whole year. And 35, 10 to 16 year old kids is one heck of a challenge. When I bumped into those kids years later and I've said to them, what was the most, you know, the thing that you got the right. most from, you know, you can imagine where I'm going to go with this and with subsequent years with other kids. The two things that always stood out was, yeah, that trip away, we came up to where we are now, which is up towards the barrier reef. And when we went out there and we had to survive and the bus broke down and we had to do these things, and we had to work it, you know, and similarly, the second experience that always comes out for people, I know many educators listening will, have, will be in the same place was when we put on the performance, the play. You know, I, mem I remember having, uh, you know, the delights of, uh, of, of thinking, well, I'm, I'm, and I was teaching high elementary at the time, uh, senior grades elementary, but we did it for the whole school of Peter Pan. And so we did the play Peter Pan. Well, it took us three months to pull it together and do the whole thing. That's what the kids remember. They don't remember that lesson they're supposed to have had on similes and metaphors and on division of fractions and, and you know, they, they remember the things that were significant to them, that they were passionate about, that they that called on those soft skills um, to make work. And, and they're the things that, you know, they didn't get a mark for, we didn't give them a grade, and, and yet they're the things that they've told me set them in good stead for their lives in the future. That's, what, so, that's the feedback we get. So two points about that, right? Number one, everybody says that. Yeah. Everybody says that. Yep. And number two, no one's shocked by it, right? No one, you were not shocked when that kid said, oh yeah, and we went up to the reef and we had to break, we had to fix the bus and do all that stuff. Yep. Nobody's ever shocked by that. 
And I really do think that every graduate should have one exit question before we give them their diploma. And that is, what was the most powerful learning experience you had between the ages of 13? Cool. That's it. What was the most powerful learning experience you had between the ages of 13 and 18? And I would guarantee you that very, very few of them would have anything to do with school. And that if we were, if we were open enough to the idea of really studying their responses and then acting on what we learn from listening to kids, schools yeah. would be much different places from the way they are today. Yeah. Um, because right. I, I just, you know, if, if, if kids are not remembering the learning that they're doing in our classrooms, then they're not learning in terms of our job. They're not, we are not doing our job. Uh, we say this all the time, but I really, you know, and it's hard to hear that, but it, it's true. I mean, kids are not learning in school as much as we hope they are. And um, no amount of standing on our heads or using technology or, you know, incentives or pizzas or, you know, points for going to football games or whatever we want to do to try to get them to learn, it's not going to work because those aren't the things the kids want to learn. They want to learn things that matter to them. And it's our job to figure out how do we, how do we take our stuff and in, embed it in the things that they are more, most interested in learning? And that's basically what he says at the end of this article, too. And, and he did say that, and I, I think, again, just on this point about asking kids this when they graduate, graduate, he said, you know, we didn't try to calculate a score for students' ingenuity, creativity, or ability to motivate others, but we did collect rich evidence on their learning process. We asked what they themselves considered to be their most meaningful learning experience rather than offering a list of possibilities. Just open-ended and basically, you know, what, what did you learn and what was that about? And um, basically, um, you know, he kind of ties it in to the future at the end where he says, you know, there's now widespread agreement that many of the jobs that are currently filled by humans would, will be performed by computers and robots in the future. But there's a whole other class of jobs that will be harder to replace, jobs that involve creativity, collaboration, empathy, the types of skills that the fire truck hackers demonstrated, right? And yep. he comes to the conclusion <laughs> at the end of this that um, if we don't make more of those opportunities happen when they're with us, um, we're, we're not preparing them for the worlds they're going to live in. I, I just love that. I love that piece. Yeah, and I think, I think it's also the segue because I know, you know, this has been a, a, a great discussion and, uh, and in the time I got left, I do want to just refer back to why we're in New Zealand and what we were trying to do. Um, as we said uh, in an earlier podcast and, and through the newsletters, um, we're now reaching out beyond the newsletter and beyond Change School and the community and doing a lot more face-to-face -face work. And so Will and I and Lynn and Missy at times will be coming out in what we're calling Modern Learners Labs. And these are times where we can get together with 40 or 50 people and share their experiences between themselves and with us. And all of us learn together um, how we can develop some of these ideas into practical outcomes that people can take into classrooms. And, and the intent is to help build people's capacity to do this work because a lot of people say to us, hey, listen, we listen to the podcast, we read the newsletters, we love what you've got to say, what does it actually look like? How, how can we, how can I make this happen for my kids in my schools? And I think the thing that we found the most inspiring in, in, in all the labs we've done so far um, has been watching people start believing that they do have that capacity and building that capacity through these labs to help them do this work. And the work in New Zealand was around assessment. It's obviously, it's front and centre of a lot of people's 
um, focus at the moment for all sorts of reasons. But when we do it in the way that we've been, we explored in New Zealand, it, it takes a completely different perspective. It says, what should this look like? What could this look like? And why should we be doing it? And I think it, you and I learned a lot from the discussions and the conversations we had in those labs. And we're very much looking forward to taking these labs now around the world. And, and for people who are listening or watching um, this podcast and who would like to have us come into your district or your school and run these labs for, for people in your community and the wider community around, we'd love to hear from you. So if, any, if you'd like us to come into the school, let us know. We're looking at probably running another three or four labs in early November. Uh, in North America and then in other places next year. And we're learning like everyone else who's coming to the labs, but it's been an inspiring start to this series and, and the discussions we've had, I think have, have really set the agenda for what we can actually do in this, in this space. Yeah, I agree. As exhausting as that trip was, it was amazing in, in terms of those conversations that we had in those, in those uh, lab days as well. And looking forward to doing lots more of those and just, if you're still with us, uh, don't forget that uh, cohort six of Change School is now open for enrollment. Um, it closes in two weeks, um, and this is—I can't believe our sixth cohort. But yeah, uh, these are the types of things that we go deeply into. I mean, the, the things we talk about in this podcast and the questions that we're asking here extend into those communities, uh, into our modern learners community as well. So, lots of different places to keep these conversations going if you're interested in doing that. Well, mate, enjoy the rest of your time in the rainforest. Don't uh, watch out for low-hanging snakes. And, uh, <laughs> and um, I'm sure that we will be back uh, hopefully within a week or so with uh, some more observations about life in the new world of education. But anyway, great to see you. Yeah, good talking to you, mate. Cheers. Cheers, mate.